Joseph. And I'm Nick. And this is Fish Jelly. Oh. At the sound of the tone. <laughs> the countdown to uh, annihilation. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Better. I was sick for a few days. Yeah. It was like I had a cold, which was exacerbated by allergies. And life. And just general existence. I did take a COVID test and it was negative. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also had food poisoning right after we filmed, or films recorded last week's podcast. Yeah, that you had had food poisoning earlier this past week. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so think, but that was a, it was a, like a 12 hour stint. Yeah. Although uh, that's only the second time since, uh, that's only the second time of you hearing me throw up. You like to tell people that for some reason. I don't know why you're proud of that. Or <laughs> no, well, you just because the you always tell stories about how extreme it sounds. But um, well, I don't always tell stories. You like to bring up that. <laughs> I don't just tell people like, oh, when Nick vomits. <laughs> so I don't know why you like to bring it well, up. Well, because it feels very much when it's happening to me, it feels like an exorcism. So it's Fourth of July weekend. God, I keep forgetting that. Which, you know... I feel like America needs to skip its birthday this year. It's been terrible, terrible. Well, what makes it worse is all of the people with the fireworks. And it's like, what are we celebrating? Especially this year. I mean, really any year since oh, I've been alive. Um, but... any, any ladies out there, please don't light a firework for your country this year. <laughs> anyway, the Essence Fest is this weekend. Mm-hmm. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I watched... So Hulu is airing the festival in its entirety like live streaming it so i watched it yesterday because the headliner was janet jackson of course Mm -hmm. uh it just reminded me that the idea of going to a festival seems miserable because it's like i'd be stuck in one venue for hours and hours and hours Ugh. well it it, like i think i was trying to tell yeah, if you are staying close enough nearby where you can get little breaks in, that's fine. I don't think that's the case. But I don't think that that doesn't look like the case there. So these people were there like for... Coachella. I can't even imagine. Oh yeah, no, like no, being no. there for ten hours, like waiting. Ugh. And then you know they have the main stage plus like the side stages and getting you know in between main acts there's like setup that's required so then you go to the other that is a really long time to just be out there and not properly hydrated and it just doing, doing drugs not having drinking. access to good bathrooms and oh yeah no no but i did watch all of it um yeah i don't the, think i'd ever seen angela Yee head on <laughs> Because I was like, who is that? I know that voice. Yeah, you're used to her on The Breakfast Club, and you didn't realize it was her, because you're only used to seeing her profile. <laughs> With bad hair, usually. She's hosting it. Uh, she looked good. She did. For her, yeah. <laughs> the people on the main stage were Lucky Day. I didn't know who that was, but I thought his music actually... I, I would check it out. Uh, Chloe X. Haley. Who I like. They performed... There wasn't much to their performance. They were just on stage, scantily clad. Uh, Looking good, yeah. But they looked good, but it was kind of awkward to it, me. It, 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 wasn't, it didn't live up to that performance of uh, the ungodly hour uh, that we saw. What was that? The VMAs? Maybe. During the pandemic? Um, what's Chloe just put out a single album on her own that I haven't listened to yet. 
D-Nice, the DJ, he was there and he had some surprise guests like Carl Thomas, Elle DeBarge, mm-hmm. uh, Stephanie Mills came out and sang, Drew Hill came out and Drew sang. Drew Hill, yeah, I am. Uh, I was curious though, because you know, the headliner is obviously Janet Jackson and Elle DeBarge was there. I wonder if they I d- her made people, time to see each other. I, I don't, I would guess not, but. I'm sure he would be happy to see her. Um, and I can't imagine she would say no, but yeah, I'm hoping we get a story on that. Then Summer Walker performed. Oh my God. She's a beautiful young lady. Yes, she's beautiful, but. But first of all, she, you know, she, she's a former stripper, so she. Nothing wrong with that. To say she was dressed like a stripper is appropriate. She had on like. A mesh top that was taped to her body. Mm-hmm. And then halfway through her like 25 minute set, her top, she was having like a wardrobe malfunction. So she was already like, she looked like someone propped up like a person in a coma. And she was just standing there like singing her song. That I don't call that singing. It's definitely not performing. She looked like a, a sex robot. She couldn't have been less enthusiastic. And then for the first, if, if she did seven songs, the first three songs, she just stood in one place. Oh my God. And then when she decided to move, that's when she had her wardrobe malfunction. So for the second half of her performance, she just kept playing with her top and like grabbing her breasts. Mm-hmm. It was really awkward. You know, her music is definitely a vibe and I could see how... I, I can see how people like it, and I could also see myself sitting in, like, wherever, like a barbershop. Or an elevator. And enjoying it. I don't think it's elevator music. Some of that shit was boring. I don't think it's boring. I just... She gave nothing to the performance, so it was like... And it all sounded very similar. So that was not an impressive first uh, exposure to her. It wasn't a good first impression. No, especially when you have somebody like Jasmine Sullivan on later. It's like, well, this is what you do when you perform. Well, then like, Jasmine yeah. Sullivan was next, and then and you know she, you know, her music is more um, recognizable to me, and she definitely has more energy. But before Jasmine Sullivan came out, we got to see a performance by someone called Pokey Bear, <laughs> who apparently is like, a, I think he's from like he's notable in like Baton Rouge, maybe. Yeah, I hadn't heard of him, and I thought somebody had uh, shanghaied the stage. If you don't know who Pokey Bear is, I would suggest getting on YouTube and, and looking up Pokey Bear. All of his music sounded the same. He will say his name over and over he again. He will continue to say his name over and over again. But I was amused. I was laughing. You left to go get wine and watermelon. As one does. As one does on a Saturday <laughs> night. So you missed most of his performance, but I was... I think I saw enough. I was giggling. <laughs> So he was definitely more entertaining than Summer Walker. Sure, but you know, it's kind of like, it's like you want to fast forward to get who you want to see. By the time you returned, Patti LaBelle was already on stage. Mm -hmm. She looks great. She's 78 years old. She doesn't perform the way she used to. Her energy's up, but her voice is not, I mean, it's still an amazing voice, but um, I thought her performance was a little cringy because towards the end, they start... Like one of her, two of her background singers get out and start rapping, mm-hmm. which was awkward. And then they start playing like some West Coast music, like Snoop Dogg type music. And she starts like crip walking and doing the bankhead bounce and 
It was really uncomfortable. Like someone <laughs> used to come get their grandma. <laughs> and then, of course, the main event was Janet Wait, Jackson. Wait, but before we get that, Patty ends on a Donna Summer song. And then, oh, which, yeah, she ends on a Donna Summer song, which was weird because Patty's catalog is big enough that she can fill up 30 minutes. Yeah. So why she spent the last five on a Donna Summer track. And then Debbie Allen was on stage or That's right. was, was in the audience. So she called Debbie Allen up. And then there was a host of other people from the audience on stage awkwardly dancing. Yeah, that was weird. So Janet Jackson comes on. I wasn't sure what to expect. I assumed she would perform for more than 30 minutes, but she gave us like 75 minutes. Yeah, it was pretty good. It was a long performance. What did you think? She looked good. Uh, I was surprised at how much live singing we got and the choreography in heels. You know, since I've been seeing her with you, I think that's the most I've seen her do. So I've seen her what now? Like well over 20 times live and... This is the most I've ever seen her use the live mic. Yeah. Her microphone's usually on, but she obviously lip syncs to a back to a pre-recorded live track mm -hmm. because it's hard to dance and sing at the yeah, same time. Yeah, it is. So, I don't know, maybe with age she's more confident, but she that that microphone was on and she was using it and I've never heard her use the microphone so much. Also, it's been many years now that she hasn't danced in heels really and for the first like 45 minutes of the concert she had on a cute little like jumpsuit that was pretty fitted she was in great shape mm -hmm. and she was wearing some louboutins they had a chunky heel maybe like a four inch heel but still haven't seen that in a while looked great she looked like it's it's like you didn't get in this kind of shape for Essence Fest, per se. So well, what I'm else excited. are you doing? Yeah, I'm excited because I know she's done a couple of performances. She was in Vegas on Friday. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, Thursday night doing a private concert. So she's done a... So now this will be her third little random concert. I think she has one more on the schedule. But yeah, she hasn't gotten into this good a shape just to do that. So I'm hoping she's about to launch a single and then um, the dates for her concert, which was canceled when COVID hit mm -hmm. back in 2020. But um, she did all the hits. I mean, she has too many number one songs to perform them to completion. Mm -hmm. So it was, they weren't medleys per se, but they were like, you know, she would do like 90 seconds of mm -hmm. each song. A couple of, I would say maybe like, six to seven songs she did like the full song not not the full full song but like mm -hmm. you know maybe two verses a bridge and a couple choruses you know she she did um that's a 56 year old lady mm -hmm. and she's still out there <laughs> dancing like you know nothing's changed i mean she's not she definitely takes breaks yeah but she dances when it counts i was like i i thought it was interesting that they didn't have somebody to get on hand to give her water when she needed it well she's never i've never seen her perform where someone hands her water she usually doesn't get water she goes backstage but i think because this set was shortened she couldn't really like she didn't have time to get back because normally stage. she goes backstage and does a costume change yeah she only did one costume change so i'm assuming that's why she kept just grabbing her water bottle but yeah i thought she looked great you know she had cut the side she had shaved the sides of her hair and then she did that weird video for Variety where she talks about big black cock. Yes. And then she's really talking about feathers. Where she's like, that's the name of the bird. 
I thought she looked terrible. Her makeup was terrible. And that's where she was like, this dress was made of, I don't want to sound vulgar, cock rings. Yeah. She looked, I mean, her makeup was bad. The hair didn't work for her. But now the sides have grown out enough that she has them braided. And then she had a big piece of hair, like sort of attached to a ponytail. So I thought she looked fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because I'm not used to hearing her sing live. I thought she 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 did a good job. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, did a almost all the hits it was impressive especially after watching you know what over four hours of people kind of just getting on a stage and doing whatever (laughs) it you know she definitely elevates it oh yeah yeah she's a professional she's been performing for you know 45 years like as a professional on a main stage it definitely shows. Oh, yeah. It definitely shows. Like, she knows exactly how to captivate an audience. So, um, I would definitely recommend... Currently, the entire performance is on YouTube. I'm sure it'll get taken down at any um, at any moment. But it's worth your 75 minutes to see an, an icon perform. Mm-hmm. Moving on. Oh, so we watched... I don't know. Poor Wendy Williams. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. You know, I have a long history with Wendy Williams and she's problematic in many ways, but you know, I've known, a, I've known of her for so long and she has such an amazing career. I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but podcasts. Oh, well, <laughs> for some reason last week, her people, her people let her get on camera and do an interview with TMZ live. Which And it was really hard to watch. It was really hard to watch. She seems like maybe she's suffering from like a neuromuscular, like degenerative disorder in addition to... She keeps citing lymphedema. And then she picks up her foot and shows that her foot is like swollen and like 95% numb and... Either that or she's on some pain meds that are like loopy. Yeah, because her she looked like she was fully sedated. Her eyes aren't even like blinking, like both each eye is not blinking at the same time. She she makes no sense. She's talking about podcast singular. Oh. I'm doing the podcast. Mm-hmm. You know, it's she keeps saying podcast. Uh it's really hard to watch. And I feel like, you know, things are not going to get better. She sounds like a Stepford wife. It's, it, it was creepy and, you know, I don't know how much I believe uh, the, the authenticity or the reality of anything that I'm being, uh, see, seeing on television or the internet, but it, even if it's not, even, it, it was just uncomfortable. It's obvious her health is in decline and she's still in control of her life for the most part. So I'm sure she insisted. She looked Okay, I mean, you know, well, you, she, you, you slap a wig on her and she looks fine. So I I think that things aren't going to get better. And I hope that she can sort of like be comfortable and at peace and hopefully no one's stealing her money. Or if they are, they don't steal all of it so she can live the remainder of her life comfortable. I don't see her. I don't know how she's going to do a podcast. She could barely speak. No. And she was unintelligible when she did. So yeah, I don't think that's happening. Yeah, person. all right. Um, you 
got information. So we went to a screening of the Avatar 2 trailer and then I guess more information has dropped on Sigourney's role in Avatar 2. Yes. Uh, <laughs> which I guess everybody's has a lot of opinions about it. But uh, so, you know, because she died, Dr. Grace Augustine died in 2009's Avatar. So everybody's assuming that she's going to come back as some tree of life kind of uh, amalgamation of whatever. And it's been revealed that she's playing a teenager named Zakira, the adopted daughter of the Zoe Saldana and Sam Worthington characters. She's, she's playing a teenager, um, which should be interesting. That's what I figured when we knew that she was returning after she had died. It would be something else. I assumed that she'd be reincarnated. Recy I thought she'd probably live in the tree and do voiceover work. She'd be recycled. But yeah, yeah. It, it makes sense. But, you know, it's she did all of the motion capture work as this teenager. It, it's... I'm very curious to see how they make this work. But you know, we you know we often talk about her, and she does have this very kind of girlish, mischievous way about her sometimes. Yeah. So I, it doesn't surprise me that she could channel that kind of energy. I just, I, I'm also just really more interested in seeing her in person as she is in other films. But moving on, RuPaul's Drag Race All Stars season seven, the winner's season mm -hmm. episode eight. It was called Santa's School for Girls. Mm -hmm. All the queens had to act in this, like... I thought this was stupid. It was. Because it's supposed to be, like, a holiday horror film. Mm -hmm. I didn't get the horror. I, I got that it was, like, about Christmas, but I don't know why we're having Christmas in July. And, well, because there's this Well, Santa, June or whatever. There's this Santa cult going on, basically, where it's Christmas year-round and something malevolent's happening. Anyway, the guest judge was Janixa Bravo, the director of Zola. Who is a very lovely person. She came across so sweet and so delightful. Uh, so she was a joy to watch, and she was directing the this little acting thing that Queens did. Uh, I didn't enjoy it. The top two were Raja and the Vivian. I think the Vivian did shine. Oh, yeah. She's doing sort of a Faye Dunaway as Joan Crawford and Mommy Dearest impression. Mm -hmm. So, you know, of course, that's amusing. And then Raja was supposed to be like a punk rock, like, you know. She said her inspos were Nancy, so Fruza Bulk from The Craft, and uh, Lydia from Beetlejuice, who, of course, is Winona Ryder. Sure. So I thought they did a fine job. So they're the top two. They lip sync to Super Freak by Rick James. Uh, Raja wins the lip sync. That was a pretty good lip sync, I thought. Uh, yeah, it was okay. Besides, you know, Vivian falls because of the water, or slips, but I thought they were both kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, Raja wins, so she chooses to block Jada, which is funny because earlier in the episode, Jada's like, I have the most stars, so I'm sure y'all want to block me, but at this point, I'm almost certainly going to be in the finale, so even if you block me, like, I'm still going to be in the top. So it doesn't make sense to waste your block on me, which I kind everyone was making everyone was making fun of her. Like, why would you bring attention to that? But I thought it made sense. Like, I'm an obvious target, so why not shoot my shot and try to like deter them? So I think that what she did made sense um, because what is she going to do? Hide in the corner? Like, you have the most stars. Everyone knows it. Mm -hmm. So she did what she could, but she still got blocked. Uh, but that's all I have to say about Drag Race. Uh, we don't have anything in the Sorry to This Man section. 
So um, we can move on to your top five June releases. Although we did release something a month early, but which I found out about the other day. But <laughs> what? What did we release early? Resurrection comes out uh, July 29th, not June 29th. Oops. <laughs> but so you know, it's fine. Sorry to. That, that's what I get when publicists send me like, "This is being released earlier, and uh, could you get to this as soon as possible?" I'm like, "Oh, oh my mind." So the video, in my mind, I'm like, the video for Resurrection, we released a month early. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know that. I knew that because I also, you know, covered it at Ion Cinema, and they were like, "Why? When are we?" Well, we did like it. You. <laughs> so at least there's that. I mean, they're used to me getting things uh, very last minute, if not late. We gave so. it a very good. Score. No, I do really like it, but so, um, well, that we, yeah. Sorry, I you know I have to expiate myself. So anyway, what's your number five choice for the June releases? Oh yes. Yeah. So uh, if you are looking for things that you missed in June that I would recommend to catch up with that are new releases, at number five I had Official Competition, uh, directed by Mariano Cohn and Gaston Duprat, starring Penelope Cruz, Antonio Banderas, and Oscar Martinez. We um, made a video for that, and it is fun. Um, and worth a look. Number four. Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, uh, voice, with voices worked by Jenny Slate and Isabella Rossellini about a little one-eyed shell living in an Airbnb residence looking for the rest of his family. We made a video for that as well. Mm -hmm. Number three. Lost Illusions, directed by Xavier uh, Janoli, based on the classic novel by Honore de Balzac, uh, which... Won a bunch of Caesars, premiered at Venice, along with official competition last September, and I uh, quite liked it, as well as the novel. Uh, we did not cover that. Number two. Uh, number two, Dash Cam, uh, directed by Rob Savage, which I think we reviewed out of, was it TIFF 2021? Yeah, that review is old, and then all of a sudden, like a month ago, it started getting a lot of views. Because it got theatrical. Because release. it finally got released. Which is always funny, like, when videos we drop, like, months or a year earlier, all of a sudden get a ton of attention. Um, and your number one selection. The Cronenberg film, Crimes of the Future. Which we made a video for. Which I know a lot of people really did not like, but I did. So that's my recommendation. Okay, we have a lot to get through. Oh, so yes. films released we didn't cover. The Princess. You had expressed interest in that, uh, but it's on Hulu. It uh, is directed by Levon Kett. Uh, starring Joey King and Olga Kurilenko. Um, I don't know anything about it except it's about a princess that's forced to marry somebody. But Next, Mr. Malcolm's List. Uh, this is for the uh, Bridgerton and Tunnel crowd. Oh, Bridgerton and Tunnel. <laughs> uh, it's a directorial debut of Emma Holly Jones, I believe from a short sh uh, she'd already directed. And I know Frida Pinto's in it. We uh, were going to see a press screening at Soho House, I think. This film had, I had no interest in this Same. movie, but I had never been to the Soho House. So I thought, oh, we should go because they were We should go because they're tea, having tea and crumpets. They were going to serve us tea and crumpets, but we, we couldn't go because. I think it was just timing, and I was like, it's not worth stressing yeah. to get there. Next, Minions, The Rise of Gru. God, another one of these films I have no interest in. We saw one of these films. I don't remember seeing any movie with Minions, and I definitely was not interested in this one. We did. I think you were more interested in the ice cream shop at the Chinese. After oh, the probably. Film, oh, Cold Stone. I yeah. wanted to go to Cold Stone. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only reason we saw that last one. Next, Codename Banshee. This looks terrible. Something directed by John Keyes, but... Uh, Jaime King, you know, Jamie King, and uh, Antonio Banderas. It, this looks like a direct-to-DVD film if you look at the poster, but Codename Banshee came out. 
uh, something called Hot Seat. I was surprised you expressed interest in reviewing this, which obviously we didn't have time for, but starring Mel Gibson, um, Stephen Dillon, and Shannon Doherty. It just looked like it'd be... A hot mess. Yeah. Next, Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song. Documentary about Leonard Cohen through a kind of lens through his song, Hallelujah. Uh, directed by Dana Goldfine and Daniel Geller, uh, which I am... I, I'm a fan of Leonard Cohen, but I'm also interested because their last documentary was uh, called The Galapagos Affair, about that murder that happened in the Galapagos Islands, which I think you watched with me. I don't recall. Okay. Lastly, Clara Sola. Well, I have to write about that today, uh, which was a Costa Rican film directed by Natalie Alvarez Messon uh, about this woman uh, named Clara who has a kind of a crooked spine and there she's treated her grandmother basically uses her in this remote Costa Rican village to uh, heal people when really Claire is the one that kind of needs to be healed and there's an ability for her to get a free surgery and the grandma's like no the God gave me the God gave her to me this way and I wanted this way uh, but basically she's just suffering uh, really good central uh, lead performance I, I did overall like it alright movies watched for fun GoldenEye uh yes the first uh james bond uh appearance by pierce brosnan which i'd never seen i'm actually woefully behind on james bond films i've only seen one sean connery uh goldfinger and uh the daniel craig films and that's really it uh this was directed by martin campbell uh who would go on i think he directed casino royale and another james bond movie maybe um god i was so bored though famke jansen uh uh, yeah, Tina it, Turner did the theme song for this one. Yes, which I do like. The theme song's fine. It's just it, it. And Pierce looks good. Pierce looks good, but it's like there's all these like terrible things happening, of course. And then it's like, oh, wah wah. Here's a funny little smug line. It's just so dumb. Next, Con Air. Oh, I'd never seen this. Came out the same year as Face Off, so we got you know the Nick Cage action classics that year. Um, this movie deserves its own uh, episode because there's it was more ridiculous than I expected, and I don't even know where to begin. I, I mean, we I would recommend it because it's so over the top silly. Nick Cage's accent. Nick Cage's accent is so distracting. It's supposed to be southern. <laughs> it sounds like he's doing like a Creole, like I don't know. He also seems like maybe he's hearing impaired. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it opens, of course, to Trisha Yearwood's uh, version of how, how, do I live? how do I live? And him and his wife, played by Monica Potter, whose honor he has to defend, he actually kills somebody. Well, in a actually, bar fight. the initial premise: he goes to prison because some guy is beating him up, and in self defense, he ends up like, you know, involuntarily killing this man. I don't even know how he got prison time for that, for especially for years, but. Like, oh my God, I, we, there, there's no point going through it, but... But I, he, he's about to be rela- released in his diabetic friend, McKelty Williamson. Oh God. And then... <laughs> uh, his insulin. What, what's the guy's name with the eyes and the teeth? Uh, Steve Buscemi. Steve Buscemi. Has nothing to do. Oh, and then uh, Malkovich. Uh, John Malkovich, oh. so over the top as a baddie. <laughs> John Cusack, so dull so as dumb. the FBI agent that's... Uh, <laughs> that believes in Nick Cage's propensity to save the day. Uh... But but you know if you, it, I think it's a good like Friday night stupid movie to watch. 
Next, this is my desire. Oh, I have to write about this today, but it's a Criterion release, I think from March, uh, directed by Ari and Chuko Esiri, a uh, Nigerian film. It reminded me of earlier uh, Ramin Barani films like Man Pushcart and Chop Shop. Uh, basically about two different uh, people in Lagos who are desperately trying to get out of Nigeria, but tragedy kind of intervenes. But I thought it was very well done. It's part of the Criterion Collection. Next, Tentacles. You watched part of this with me. That was hard to sit through. <laughs> it felt so generic. It's 1977. It's just like every other, like... Italian, like these Italian directors. Mm -hmm. It's uh, directed by Ovidio F. Asinitis, directing under a pseudonym, of course, whose previous film was an exorcist ripoff starring Juliet Mills called Beyond the Door, Behind the Door. Uh, this, the cast that was unbelievable, it stars John Huston, Shelley Winters, and uh, Henry Fonda, who I had read had just filmed all his scenes in one day, flubs his lines, though, and has uh, he had just received a pacemaker, so he didn't want to move around. Um, it, it, it's a Jaws ripoff. Uh, the only reason it's worth watching is for Shelley Winters. Oh, Shelley Winters, who has a young child, lives with her brother, John Houston. Her plot line is, it makes no sense. And she, I don't understand these kids, and they enter she, like a yacht competition. She, she and, puts these kids, her son and his friend on a yacht, and then is is uh, speaking to them via walkie-talkie. And all her dialogue is, she seems... <laughs> she seems so affected. It's so, it's great uh, watching her. Her, but the movie, I, I couldn't. I couldn't finish Well, it. especially the last like 25 minutes because there's no dialogue and just this underwater battle. I read that they built a $1 million uh, life-size octopus but couldn't use it because it sank in the water. Oh, wow. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's terrible but it's something I'd wanted to watch for a long time but really dumb. Sleep? Uh, also known as Schlaf. as uh, a German film that's played at the 2020 Berlin Film Festival, uh, starring Sandra Hüller, which I remember wanting to watch it for her at that festival. It was in the sidebar that I missed it. But Arrow Video uh, put it out a couple months ago, so I finally sat down and watched that, and boy, was I bored. Kind of a David Lynch ripoff of <sighs> all kinds of elements. Of this, this Sandra Hüller is this stewardess who's having these weird visions of these men killing themselves at this particular hotel that she finds out where it is and goes to and then ends up in the hospital in a coma basically and her daughter follows in her footsteps and blah 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 I was very bored uh, next is Prayer for the Dying so Mike Hodges who is a director who's still probably best known for his first film starring Michael Caine Get Carter which was remade with Sylvester Stallone not very well in the early 2000s or was that late 90s anyway uh, Mike Hodges uh you know, he had a hard time getting a lot of projects off the ground, and he disowned this film, as did the lead star, Mickey Rourke. But it was really interesting uh, and had elements I liked, mainly the cast, but Mickey Rourke plays this IRA member who uh, is hired by Alan Bates, who you know from The Shout, uh, to kill this person. But there's a witness, this priest played by Bob Hoskins, uh, but Mickey Rourke really wants out of the IRA. Uh, Liam Neeson, his old partner, is hunting him down because... Uh, they want him back. He's trying to leave. Alan Bates is upset that there was a witness. They want him to kill the priest, blah, blah, blah. It's very existential. Mickey Rourke didn't like that they glorified the violence. Uh, and, of course, his character falls in love with the blind niece who plays the organ of Bob Hoskins. Uh, lots of interesting things. I really like the film Mike Hodges did right after this starring Rosanna Arquette's called uh, Black Rainbow, but worth a watch. Lastly, All Fall Down. Uh, you were around... 
the other morning when I had this on. So you were listening to the Bad Gay Movies podcast and on their episode about Exit to Eden, which I could also rewatch, uh, one of them brings up this John Frankenheimer film from the early 60s uh, called All Fall Down. And it was in a relation to an Ava Marie Saint uh, conversation. And I've never seen this film, and I'm a fan of Ava Marie Saint and everybody else in this, uh, but uh, young Warren Beatty. Oh, yes. Where his name is Barry Barry. Barry Barry. <laughs> oh, my God. And, and they keep saying it. And, Barry Barry. And his parents, and it's a coming of age story about the, his younger brother, Brandon DeWild. Uh, his character basically finding out that his older brother, who is a Lothario, is just this shallow piece of shit. Uh, but the parents are played by Carl Malden and uh, Angela Lansbury. And there's some very... Oh, so first of all, John Frankenheimer directed this. And John Frankenheimer had three films out that year. He had this, Birdman of Alcatraz, and The Manchurian Candidate. Uh, so those other two are actually much well, more... Well, before you even say anything, I didn't realize... I know who Warren Beatty is. Mm -hmm. And I know that he's had many, like, female... Uh, uh, lovers, I don't know. What Apparently, he, well, he who did he exhaust? Joan Collins? She was like, I couldn't take it. But I didn't realize he was so handsome when he was younger. Well, I can't believe you still haven't watched Bonnie and Clyde, which I guess I need to make a secret film to get you to watch. But yeah, he was very handsome. And he did uh, The Roman Spring and Mrs. Stone before this. You know. the. Anyway, go on. Anyway, uh, Angela Lansbury, who's only 12 years older than Warren Beatty, is also one of the women that is hopelessly in love with him, and that's the reason he won't really come home, because of all the sexual tension. Wait, with his own mother? Yes. Like, oh, I, oh, wow. Oh, yeah, okay. there, there are some bizarre things happening in this movie. Uh, and, of course, he gets Ava Marie St. pregnant, and she, but, you know, the, he doesn't really want to be tied down or be with her, and she drives off in the rain and kills herself in a car. Uh well, she's probably better off. Probably better off, yeah. But uh, it, it's based on a play by William Inge. So I remember as a kid discovering Tennessee Williams and Edward Albee. Like, William Inge was kind of a little second tier for me, but all of his stuff is pretty good, too. And, you know, Marilyn Monroe fought to get a, the role in his the adaptation of his play Bus Stop, which was considered a step up for the material she was in around the time. But, uh, yeah, I'll Fall Down, uh, everybody's really good in it. Uh, it just strikes me that Angela Lansbury, who only six years later would make a big stink about being offered the role of a lesbian in the killing of Sister George, would think that somehow this is much more appropriate in this film where I want to fuck my son. Okay, we need to get through these quickly. Projects of interest. Uh, misleading portraits. Oh, so there's a new Isabelle Huppert film that's been announced. Uh, she's reuniting with uh, Patricia Mazwai, uh, who directed her in this film in 2000 called King's Daughters, a.k.a. St. Cyr. Uh, I covered a retrospective of this director's work, I don't know, a couple years ago now, and that was the only way I'd been able to see The King's Daughter with English-language subtitles. Uh, but this uh, co-stars Hafsia Herzi, which is also very interesting to me, uh, who stars in a lot of... Um, Abdelatif Kashish's films. Something called Strange Ways of Life. Uh, Pedro Almodovar, who uh, is making his English language uh, narrative debut technically with Kate Blanchett, um, is making another medium length film. I guess technically his English language debut was um, the Tilda Swinton uh, Human Voice, but that's a medium length film. He's making another medium length film with Ethan Hawke and Pedro Pascal, which you know, I feel like those films are hard to play anywhere, but anyway. 
Next, Strangers. Uh, Andrew High, who the director of 45 Years and uh, Looking and Weekend, uh, has announced another project uh, that's filming right now, I think, with Claire Foy, Paul Mescal, and Jamie Bell. Something called La Conversion. Uh, Marco Bellocchio, also just working a ton. He uh, just had that five-hour series that premiered at Cannes, Esterno Note, uh, which I did cover. Uh, he has a new project he's filming right now. It's a about this true life case in 1858 about this Jewish student who's forced to convert to Catholicism. Hmm. Uh, something called Two Days, 1963. Yeah, David Mamet, who I don't think has directed anything in a minute, is doing this film centered around the two days in 1963 after JFK was assassinated. Mm, something called Apathy. Uh, Alexander Avranas, who's kind of at the tail end of the Greek weird way with his debut Miss Violence in 2013, uh, is back with another project called Apathy. Uh, he did that really weird Jim Carrey movie uh, that premiered in Poland. Uh, I'm forgetting the name of it because it had a, they, they give it a very generic renaming. But yeah, he's coming back with another film. Something called the the Dreamt Adventure. A uh, German director named Valeska Griesbach, whose 2017 film Western I really liked. Uh, she's announced a new project called The Dreamt Adventure. Uh, uh, something called A Case History. Uh, Romanian director Radu Jude, who won the Golden Bear for his last film, Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn. has He works a lot, too. If, he, if it's not every year, it's every other year he has a project, but he has a new film, A Case History. Lastly, Back in Action. Oh my God, this is an embarrassing addition, but I can't believe that Cameron Diaz is coming out of retirement to star in a Jamie Foxx Netflix movie called Back in Action that is directed by Seth Gordon, who's the director of, whose last film I think was Identity Thief. Yeah, based on all of the Netflix stuff we've watched recently, I'm very concerned. Although I don't think of Cameron Diaz as you know, having had like no, quality stuff. But it's like, but, you want to come back for that. I mean, I, I, you know, but her in particular, it's, it's been made such a big deal that she's retired. So yeah, even though I don't consider her like a quality actor, it's like, Oh, all this hullabaloo about you retiring and you come back for this. Well, I think she got tired of the Hollywood machine, but it's like, you could really come back and do all kinds of weird, interesting things. Who's, yeah. And your name would automatically elevate like anything anybody's doing, but this is it. I don't, I, Unfortunately, there's an entry in the obituary section. Someone named Massimo Morante. Someone named. Yeah, he's one of the uh, band members of Goblin, uh, who have created some of my favorite um, soundtracks, namely for Dario Argento's... Nilbog? No. Dario Argento's films like Suspiria uh, and Deep Red. All right. He was 69. We have about 20 minutes to discuss the secret movie. You chose it. Why well, did you choose it? Well, it was between an abortion film that I still want to watch uh, that I really like. But uh, I think based on everything we covered last week, this is more in line with kind of last week's selection, which was yours, To Die For. Um, okay, well, the, the movie we watched is Poison Ivy, a 1992 American erotic thriller directed by Kat Shea. Starring Drew Barrymore, Sarah Gilbert, Tom Skerritt, and Cheryl Ladd. So I'd never seen this. I hadn't either. There apparently it, it kicked off a, 
a kind of a franchise because there are four of these films now. I distinctly recall this movie being available at the video store when I was in high school, and I remember the poster, but I knew that my mom wouldn't let us rent it because it's rated R. Same. Um, and I also was vaguely aware as a kid of kind of the hubbub about Drew Barrymore's drug problems and uh, a scandal, the scandal of Playboy and blah, blah, blah. This shit was terrible. It was really bad. Yeah. And, and, and this was also not... This is, I want to say, the fourth film directed by... I, she was known then, Kat Shea Rubin. I think she must have been married to the screenwriter Andy Rubin. Uh, it's so... Gen- the plot is so generic. Like, it's so predictable. I don't know what inspired... I mean, I'm sure around this time there were other films of a similar nature. Well, this is the same year as something like The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. And what year was Fatal Attraction? Fatal Attraction was 87. 87. But that was very adult. This this sure. feels very YA. But I mean, you know, I, I think this was like part of a string of films that had sort of that adult, that vibe. you know, erotic thriller vibe. But the basic story is Sarah Gilbert is like a teenager and she lives in Beverly or like the Hollywood Hills. Her her dad is rich. She goes to this very fancy school along with Drew Barrymore. But Drew Barrymore is like there on a scholarship. So it's made to seem like she's poor. Like what? Santa's school for girls. Yeah. <laughs> the two befriend each other because they're both kind of outcasts. And in a very predictable way, Drew Barrymore ingratiates herself and their family. It's important to know that Cheryl Ladd plays Melissa Gilbert's mom and she's dying of emphysema. So she's just bedridden, popping Percodans all day and all night. Mm-hmm. So Drew Barrymore like becomes the daughter Cheryl Ladd never had. She seduces Tom Skerritt, has an affair with him. She is... We can get into it. I don't understand her motivation for why she wants to destroy Melissa Gilbert's life. But she doesn't. That's the thing. She wants to live together as a family. You think? I don't think she really... I think she wanted her life, but then... She's also seducing the dad, so I don't know how far this girl thought she would get. But anyway, it all culminates with Drew and Melissa go for a joyride in the dead mom's Corvette, like down Mulholland, and they get into an accident where Melissa is... I'm sorry, I keep saying Melissa Gilbert. Her name is Sarah Gilbert. Sarah, yeah. (laughs) Melissa Gilbert's Little House in the Prairie. (laughs) That's her sister. Sarah Gilbert um, is badly injured, so she's in the hospital, but... Sarah realizes that her dad sort of doesn't believe her and is Mm -hmm. buying into whatever Drew Barrymore is selling. So Sarah breaks out of the hospital, goes goes home, and sees her dad having sex with Drew Barrymore. So So there's kind of a situation, and it ends with Sarah pushing Drew like off the balcony and killing her. Not unlike Drew did to her mother. Mm-hmm. So the mother dies because Drew pushes her off the same balcony. The end. There are um, connective tissues to the uh, the story that make no goddamn sense. That The minute... I'm just going to go through my notes because we don't have a lot of time. The minute we see Drew Barrymore, she looks like a problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then... One, oh, God. The, the dialogue sh- is so bad. The narration by Sarah Gilbert is... <laughs> Says that. Yeah, and then immediately she says, like, she looks like a problem. Um, they, Sarah calls Drew scangy. 
Skangy, yeah, Skangy. Skangy? Which is like, was that skank? In, no, it's mangy. It's Skangy. So is that like a hybrid of skank and mangy? I, I have never they heard. They use it twice. I mean, I was a teenager in 1992 and I recall people saying skanky a lot, but I've never heard I've never heard that, but according to Urban Dictionary, it's grimy, dirty, a dude with month-old cornrows who looks like he hasn't taken a bath in two weeks. That dude, Tony, is uh, skangy. But Drew's character doesn't look like that. No. She looks skanky. Yeah. So I'm so confused why they chose that word. Then we see uh, Sarah. I keep... Uh, every note I wrote down, I wrote Melissa Gilbert. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sarah Gilbert, the lesbian, mm -hmm. who was on... Uh, Roseanne. Roseanne and The Talk. Mm -hmm. Sarah's hairdo... Because she has curly, long curly hair, and then the side of her head is shaved into like an Egyptian symbol. I think it's the Eye of Horus. And then it has no purpose, except that she's like... A rebel. Like an intellectual, angsty teenage rebel. Um, okay, the first time the dad meets Drew, it's it's like the first day that her and Sarah have met. Mm -hmm. And she runs up to the dad's fancy Mercedes like, hey, I need a ride home. And the dad agrees. That girl got into that man's car and insists on sitting in the front seat because she says she gets car sick. And then she puts her dirty boots up on his dashboard. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine if I gave one of your little raggedy friends a ride home and they put their dirty ass shoes on my dashboard? Oh my God. Yeah. That, that took my breath away. Well, yes. The, then there's a point where Sarah is telling Drew, because she's trying to seem edgy. So she tells her like, oh, the scars on my wrist, I tr attempted suicide. And all oh, my hair is curly because my dad is black. <laughs> yeah, I was like, um, no. Uh, we're supposed to believe Sarah Gilbert is half black? No. But then we find out she's lying for attention. So she really didn't try to slit her wrist. And her, mm -hmm. her biological father is Tom Scarrett. Tom Scarrett. <laughs> Then they're they're trying to get in know uh, Sarah and Drew are trying to get to know each other while they're hiking like Runyon or something, and Drew, like Sarah is sort of like analyzing Drew and is basically like, oh, do you dress sexy because you wanted your dad's attention? Mm -hmm. And then they surmise that Drew's dad abandoned her because she wasn't sexy enough. Yeah, <laughs> what? Okay, the score for this movie is, is K-Terrible. Is very bad. Mm -hmm. Very, very bad. Um, there's one piece of music that is played repeatedly that sounds like the intro, and I know that this came out before this song, but it sounds like the intro to Brandy and Monica's The Boy Is Mine. It sure does, <laughs> yep. But um, yeah, it's really bad. David Michael Frank was the composer. Oh, God. Um, who also did the score for a lot of Steven Seagal movies like Above the Law oh. and Hard to Kill. So it's very obvious that Drew's plan is to seduce Tom Skerritt. And the first time we see her really hit hard is she's like lounging on the lanai or whatever. <laughs> and she has her boots off. Mm -hmm. And she asks Tom Skerritt to grab her boots. And then we get a clip of him like trying to grab her boots. And he just knocks them over the balcony. But the way he grabs them is like... They fall into the koi ponds. And but like, did he do that on purpose? I don't know. Because uh, then he, she's like, those cost one hundred fifty dollars, and he gives her a wad of hundreds. That move, that scene made me so uncomfortable. It Tom, really did. Tom Skerritt looks so. He's being so creepy. Creepy. 
Um, Cheryl Ladd's character is living my fantasy life. Cheryl Ladd was giving me uh, when uh, white women consider suicide when the Percocet is not enough. Right. That's my <laughs> fantasy life. I just want to live in like a mansion in the hills and just like be dying but still beautiful and just be fucking miserable. And <laughs> okay, you say she's beautiful, but I thought she looked really bland and boring. She looks great because she's dying of emphysema. And she doesn't look that sick. Yeah, for She doesn't look sick at all. For, I mean, as a screen presence, Cheryl Ladd just is boring to me. Sure, but she looks great. Sure. Uh, there's a scene where Drew is getting a tattoo, and then her and Sarah get into an argument. And the tattoo man is scangy. Yeah. Uh, that scene was cringy. But the audio, the dialogue's terrible. And I don't think that... Sarah Gilbert's a bad actor because I thought she was just fine on Roseanne. But like all of her lines, and I think it might be the ADR, sounds so crunchy. And then I don't know that I think Drew Barrymore is a great actor, but... I don't think so at all. No. I feel like she comes across better than Sarah Gilbert. She does, but she has the more sympathetic character. It's like she's supposed to be this inter this toxic interloper, but she's actually more sympathetic. Like, Sure, she's a uh, a leech, uh, and a vampire, maybe, but you said that, but I don't quite understand why you she's just connected try, because she's because she's just trying to survive. Like this, to me, this is a woman who's trying to get by and trying to, you know, maybe elevate herself in, in, instead of these like lazy rich white people. Yeah, but she that are also using people, but the way that they're using people is supposedly okay. Mm, I don't know if it's that serious because she had already ingratiated herself into their lives as just being like the. Like, the daughter's best friend. So even before she was sleeping with the dad, even before she was manipulating the mom, they were, like, letting her sleep there, giving her I, clothes, but, buying her shit. So she could have had a very nice life. And you know what probably would have happened? When they graduate, that academy they go to, I bet her parents, Sarah's parents, would have paid for her to go to college, bought probably, her car. But the problem only starts because Cheryl Ladd catches them in the Tom's Garrett in the kitchen, neck and all. You're her. right, but what I'm saying is that it, I don't understand why Drew's character took it to that level because just as a function of her being good friends with Sarah, she was living the life. So why would you take it to the next level she, when you already were in like I, Flynn? Because I think it's survival. It's it's she knew that she had a limited time because of the wife seeing that. Like the cat's out of the bag. There's always going to be suspicion now. So in order, right? For her to but I'm saying before that happened, she was already in. So to me, it's hard to. She's be already she's already in, but you know that that man is going to make a move on her. Like there's there's inevitable because she's seducing him. Yes, but to you know, there's going to be a line that's crossed, and what happens when? Yeah, but you're you're not wrong, but you're also saying that you sympathize with her. But I just don't think it makes sense because she's she's taking it to a level she doesn't have to take it. She could have really had like if she wants a family and she wants to be secure. I agree, but she didn't have to go that far. She's she's written as kind of a moron, kind of like the scene in the Corvette where she's humming the line that the specific familial tune that Cheryl Ladd was playing when she was killed and Melissa Gilbert's like or Sarah Gilbert's like where did you hear that song I wrote that for my mom that was playing when she died you killed her like <laughs> okay we still have a lot of notes in no time so when they leave that tattoo scene because they got into a big fight and then they make up and then they decide to hitchhike home mm -hmm. and then they, this guy of course stops and Drew sits in the truck while they put Sarah in the bed of the truck mm -hmm. <laughs> I thought that was funny okay 
I was very confused by Tom Skerritt's character. He's super rich. One character says, oh, you own half the valley. But he's also the general role manager of a TV station who's doing these PSAs. Mm -hmm. When does the general manager of a TV station ever do PSAs? And then we see towards the end, because he's distracted by like the death of his wife, that some other person's doing the PSA and he's upset about it. And then he's having a party, like he's running for political office, mm -hmm. but it's not explained why. I thought that was really bad writing. Cheryl looks great, but they give her these dingy yellow nails. And mm -hmm. I don't know if that's supposed to signify smoking. like smoking, but it looks ridiculous. Then the scene after, the scene right before, the scene where Drew's seducing Tom Scare, she's doing this erotic dancing. Mm -hmm. nothing nothing about that was there, there's nothing erotic there's nothing erotic about any of what's going on well no but it also speaks to what we you know drew barrymore in the early 90s and it's like this girl this young woman coming of age and that was really all that's erotic about her is just that she's uh, her youth there's a scene where sarah's fighting with drew and saying like you know you don't have my life this is my dog and then they're calling the dog like whose name is Fred, to see, like, who the dog is loyal to. That was cringy. Then, so, then towards the end of the film, the dad goes to pick up Sarah from school, and he sees Drew, mm -hmm. and says, oh, hey, I got off work early. I figured I might as well pick up my kid. Like, yeah, good idea. And Drew says, oh, Melissa didn't come to school today. And he doesn't even care. He's like, fine, get in. It's okay. <laughs> okay. I was born and raised in L.A., have lived here now for a long time, when does it rain so much in it, LA? This, this, this <laughs> film should have been set in Seattle with the amount of rain. That oh they my need. God! Every day it's raining. But it either we it either rains for like several days straight. Like there's so much rain. I need to so understand. I need to understand how old Drew Barrymore was when this movie was filmed. I think she's six, she's sixteen or seventeen. It feels so inappropriate because she's being sexual with Tom Skerritt, and I'm sure there were body doubles used in some scenes, but it's still too much with her that made me uncomfortable that I'm surprised this even got made. Um, I don't think it could be made now. Oh gosh. The cinematography when the mom gets pushed off the ledge. Yeah. And you see Drew like looking down. Yeah. Like that was a choice. Um, and then after the mom dies, Drew is still in the house and she's sleeping in the dead mom's bed. The night of the funeral. I just, it, it, listen, it wouldn't be me. Like Sarah needed to let this girl know like you are not my friend. You need to get out of my house. But I mean, this is the the story is the equivalent of like those YA novels that R.L. Stein and Christopher Pike wrote in the nineties. It's very so much that. So Sarah's character figures out what's going on while they're going on this joy ride in the dead mom's car because Drew is humming a song. That's what I said. Yeah. Oh, I already talked about that. You did? Yeah. Oh, I didn't catch that. Well, it was ridiculous. Yes. Um, when Sarah leaves the hospital. She's hitchhiking home and this like terror bus being driven by some goth kid picks her up mm -hmm. in the rain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was so unnecessary. Then when she gets home, we see Tom Skerritt naked hunched up on Drew. That was just so awkward. Mm -hmm. So, so awkward. Well, and that's where we get the other really lazy bit of storytelling there because Sarah Gilbert runs away. He runs after her. Slips and falls out on the outside stairs. So does Drew Barrymore. And then he sees her chest. And because of the car well, because there's a have, big Yeah. There's a big um, horizontal bruise on well, her. Well, we didn't mention the accident. The two girls get into yeah. a car accident. And then Drew makes it look like only Sarah was driving. Mm -hmm. 
But then Drew has this huge bruise across her chest because she's the one mm -hmm. who was driving and hit the steering wheel. Yeah, how did Tom Scare now see this big ass bruise on her chest? Because they're naked having sex. And also the bru well, she wasn't quite. Well, naked. she wasn't quite. But naked. also the bruise, and he was doing it from behind. But the bruise wouldn't be that. Uh, it wouldn't have that shape. My final note is uh, Sarah. <laughs> I literally have Melissa Gilbert written all over my notes. Sarah Gilbert in the rain at the end, looking like the girl from The Ring. <laughs> And yeah, they she have just her, looks ridiculous. They do have her looking crazy. Um, we only have like three minutes left, but... This was the, actually the fifth film directed by Kat Shea Rubin, uh, who did... Lynn Shea's brother? No. Is uh, Kat a woman? Yes. Oh. <laughs> she did a film with Christina Applegate uh, called Streets right before this, where she's getting stalked by a serial killer. Uh, but actually, the, the more notable film in, in my youth from this director was The Rage Carrie 2 from oh. 1999. Uh, but you, uh, we were on a cruise together a couple years ago and you'd watched part of Nancy Drew and the Hidden Staircase yeah. and you were obsessed with finishing that film. Yeah. She directed that. Oh, well, I did enjoy that one. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, I can recommend this one. It, there... It's funny, it, it plays like an anti-smoking PSA, but um, Cheryl Ladd is more like an air vampire. <laughs> There are moments that are like, oh, hell no. But it just, I, it, it became tedious at like the two-thirds point, And I wanted it to be over. I just can't believe that there are four of these movies. But, you know, they, they did this in a similar move uh, to Drew Barrymore. You know, she had like four or five movies, a TV series this this year. Tom Scared had four or five movies. Uh, the year A year later, Drew Barrymore would be playing Amy Fisher uh, for a, a, in the television film. Oh, God. Um, you know, they tried to do this with Alicia Silverstone after the success of Clueless. Remember, she was in that movie, like she was in The Crush and The Babysitter. It's like we very much wanted to see, to corrupt young women like this in stupid movies like this. Um, I don't know. It, it definitely doesn't live up to the reputation that I had in my mind as a kid with, with this being something that I wouldn't have been allowed to watch. Yeah, knowing that, yeah, now watching it, it's like, well, it's not really that risque. As an adult, I'm uncomfortable watching this young female actor Having doing do these this. sexual scenes with this 59 year old man but other than that it just feels corny uh the audio is really weird sarah gilbert's character is so corny it's uh it's just it it's just really dumb well, um, what do we have going on this and week? leonardo dicaprio is a small part that i couldn't find i okay. tried to go back and look for him well we need to finish so what do you have going on this week uh we're seeing a new isabella pair film this week uh, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. Okay. That uh, screening is this week. Um, a new... Uh, I hope that we get to Claire Denise Both Sides of the Blade. That comes out this week. Uh, other than that, Thor, Love and Thunder already... That press screening already happened. So, overall, mo mostly quiet week. Do you have a quote? Mm -mm. Oh, um, I did start... I finished Camille Paglia, which was exhausting to me. Uh, but... <laughs> but interesting she she had a, a segment where she has transcripts of some things that she, um camille and glenda go downtown or something which is her and this drag queen drag queen named glenda orgasm that i'm not familiar with uh but i could see that being reenacted re if amy sedaris donned her jerry blank outfit and played camille and somebody like coco peru was glenda orgasm uh would have been entertaining uh i started reading clarice lispector's the passion according to gh um, which is about a woman who has an existential crisis basically after seeing a, a cockroach dying in her maid's room. Uh, but Clarice Lispector is also interesting. She's a premier Latin American author. Uh, she's Ukrainian, but 
born or, but raised in Brazil. Um, it's very uh, interesting thus far. Is that all? Yeah. Okay, bye. <laughs>